Hey, Deserving Listeners, today's episode is going to be a deep dive on interpersonal therapy. And this episode is going to be for patrons only. So if you want to listen to this, you have to become a patron of the podcast on patreon.com. So for years now, I've been calling myself an interpersonal therapist. I mean, really, when people ask me what theory I use, I'll say, well, I, I integrate several theories. You know, I, I integrate many, many theories, actually. I love theory, and I find that most, if not all, theories have value. And I find that each of them addresses a different corner of psychology and psychotherapy. And so I'm, I, I like to integrate and blend all of them depending on the situation. But when pressed, if someone said, okay, well, if you had to pick one, what would it be? For the past, I don't know, number of years, I've been saying interpersonal. And thus, I've been wanting to work on this deep dive for a long time. I have been working on this deep dive for years, actually. I mean, I've been working on it more in earnest over the past, you know, three or four months or something. But I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time. So I decided to sit down a few months ago and really start researching all the different histories and the literature and the research and all the different contributors to interpersonal therapy. And as I was working on my notes, I started realizing, wait, I don't know if, am I really an interpersonal therapist? Maybe I didn't understand interpersonal therapy the way that it really is. And it started to frustrate me because I thought, have I been calling myself something that isn't true this whole time? Have I been advertising myself as something that's false or simplistic or something. And I found that the word interpersonal in the field of psychotherapy gets used in a lot of different ways. And at a certain point, I started to get really discouraged as I was working on this deep dive. I started thinking, how do I talk about something that I'm not that into, but I'm supposed to act like I'm that into? And then I started looking into it further. And I started realizing that actually there's a pretty a deep number of rabbit holes in interpersonal therapy that are really different than the way that I thought of interpersonal therapy. You know, I thought when I was researching this episode, I, I'd have a really easy time because I'm like, well, this is right up my alley. This is what I've been calling myself. I feel like I understand the basic tenets. But as I was looking into all the different rabbit holes, I thought, oh, wow, there's there's some weird rabbit holes in interpersonal therapy. And then I got discouraged with that too. I thought, do I really want to go down those rabbit Because I don't find those rabbit holes to be very interesting. I'm, I'm sure they're great for some people, but not for me. And I really hit a wall about a week ago. And, and then I, 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 just, I just threw my hands up and walked away from my notes thinking, and I've been here before. I've been doing this podcast for 13 years and I've been writing in academia for, you know, 25 years. And there's always that time where you're just like, I don't think I can work on this paper. I don't think I can work on this dissertation anymore. It's, it doesn't make any sense. And I, I feel like I'm running into some writer's block or I've, I've wasted my time going down this road. What if I, I should have done something different from the beginning? So I put it down uh, knowing that I would wake up the next morning and, and approach it again. And then all of a sudden, it, the next day I woke up and all of a sudden it, it clicked to me that – I'm actually not really an interpersonal therapist, and I just need to accept that, or at least the label of interpersonal 
isn't exactly accurate, given what I now understand to be the larger field of interpersonal therapy. Uh, the thing I should be actually calling myself, and this shouldn't be of any surprise to those who, who listen to the podcast for a long time, is I, I should call myself an attachment-based therapist or a psychodynamic systemic attachment-based therapist or a psychodynamic systemic humanistic feminist collaborative attachment-based therapist. But really, if I was to choose one, I would say deep attachment-based therapist. Because sometimes when you hear attachment-based therapist, you think, oh, someone who works with three-year-olds or something. And certainly I have worked with three-year-olds, but I consider attachment to be a lifelong uh, need. And when we have struggles with it, we will have all sorts of psychiatric symptoms, all the personality disorders. One might say that my conceptualization of attachment is a little bit broader than other people, but um, to me, it makes total sense. But anyway, so I have now realized in the making of this deep dive and working on these notes for the past number of months that I'm not an interpersonal therapist. I mean, I incorporate interpersonal ideas, and to a broader extent, I you know, incorporate psychodynamic and attachment-based ideas. But really, when I, and I think over the years, learning attachment theory has uh, made me realize that that's where I'm at home. And again, none of you should be surprised by that if you've listened for a while. That's that's what I always talk about. And I find it to be incredibly liberating and useful of a theory and broad, and there's so many different aspects to it. I now see everything through that lens pretty much when I see conspiracy theorists uh, or conspiracy-minded individuals rioting. I just think, well, when they were young, they were, you know, treated, mistreated and not attuned to. And so they developed insecure attachment, meaning that they have a, a working model of other that can't be trusted, that the world is a scary place. You know, they're two years old and they're left alone in their room to play by themselves and no one is there to notice when they're crying or some other mistreatment. And they just develop this very... A sure model of how to see the world, which is that authority can't be trusted, the world is unsafe, and then you become an adult and you retain that working model of other and of society or authority. And when you see something you don't like and someone comes along and says, you know, those those pesky authority, you know, authority figures, authority, uh, you know, power people are out to get you and can't be trusted. And it totally resonates with them because that's how they were uh, treated when they were young. It, the, the working model made sense when they were two, but at the age of 35, they're applying that model to the government or Bill Gates or something. And it, it feels right to them. And then they get involved in a lot of propaganda, and they feed off each other. A lot of insecure attached individuals are feeding off each other. And so I, that's how I, just as, as an example of how I see the world now, and I'm pretty sure of myself <laughs> based on the research. I, I, I feel like I really see the world now. I see people for who they are. I see us as uh, frequently reacting to our attachment threats. But anyway, Interpersonal therapy definitely incorporates attachment theory for sure, especially for some individuals. 
uh, in our in the interpersonal field, but it's not necessarily at the core. And the way that I think and the the way that I, I now realize, I in terms of labels, I, I should be calling myself an attachment based therapist. But anyway. So that's what I'm going to go into a deep dive today. Mainly it's going to be going into all the different rabbit holes or at least introducing people to that and also going into the history of interpersonal therapy, going back to Freud and ending with Dan Siegel today with interpersonal neurobiology. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode is going to end before the the good stuff begins. So if you want to listen to this, go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast do so now. Join us. Join one of us. Become one of the crew, one of the patrons. Do it now. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone. Patrons, love you so, so much. Just to let you know, there are a number of different ways you can listen to patron-only content, to premium episodes like this. So if you're listening to this, just know that there are other venues you can listen. The, the three venues are you can listen directly on Patreon by logging into your app or on your desktop and just listening from there. That can be okay. It's, it's a surefire way to listen to it, but it's not very convenient because you can't pause the episode and come back to it later, which is really annoying that Patreon hasn't fixed that yet. The other way is you uh, subscribe on a, on a podcast app you like Podcast Attic or iPhone Podcasts, and you follow the instructions that are on Patreon to link essentially your Patreon account to a podcast app. I mean, it's not really a link, but you just follow the instructions. And a lot of people find that to be useful. I that's what I do. Uh, to you know, I that's what I do to listen to when I sometimes I listen back to this podcast, <laughs> especially the old ones. I've actually been listening to the attachment. Uh, deep dives recently and just going, oh yeah, I forgot about that part. But anyway, uh, some people have a, some people have trouble with that, but know that it works for a lot of people. And if you're running into a problem, it might just be a little bit of user error. <laughs> um, it could also just be error on the behalf of the tech people, who knows, but know that that's a, that's a very convenient way because again, you're using your podcast app and you can pause it. The other way you can listen, the third way, is by going to the website and using the universal password that we have for everyone, and you just listen directly on the website. We have a couple pages that have all the pay, patron-only episodes, and so those are, the, those are the three ways. So, And you can email us if you run into problems. Uh, you can go to the contact page on psychologyseattle.com and email us, and someone should be able to help you, maybe. Um, sometimes we try to help and nothing works, but uh, we're we're doing the best we can. And the the thing I'll say is that if you run into problems, uh, it's it's probably because you're just not used to these kinds of apps, and they're pretty clunky procedures to follow, which makes sense that it's hard for some people. But usually we can iron out issues um, anyway. All right, so let's get into you know I was talking about earlier how. There's all these different rabbit holes. Well, the the two rabbit holes that I want to mention uh, here are there are so there are a number of different usages for the term interpersonal therapy, and two are these rabbit holes, which are the first one is short, uh, basically another word for short-term treatment of depression developed by Jared Clerman and Myrna Weissman and colleagues. So basically, when you when you say interpersonal therapy. 
a lot of people only think of it as this short-term 20-session treatment for depression. And I didn't, I sort of knew that, but I didn't really know it until I did this deep dive. And so anyway, let me go into this particular version of interpersonal therapy. That's called interpersonal therapy. Again, developed by Clareman and Weissman and colleagues at the New Haven Boston Collaborative Research Project in the 1960s. And sometimes people refer to it as short-term interpersonal therapy because I think of interpersonal therapy as long-term. I think of interpersonal therapy as you know years, but this version is only 16 to 20 sessions. And so basically uh, interpersonal therapy in this context, they're saying that uh, because you lose connection with other people, then you become depressed and therefore increasing connection with other people will reduce depression. And so this is a manualized treatment protocol uh, for raising awareness about your relationships, changing one's relationships for the better, again, only to reduce depression. And I'll get into more of that later. The other usage for interpersonal therapy is the therapy developed by Harry Stack Sullivan. And it's his particular theory and practice. So for some people, when you say interpersonal therapy, they don't think of the short-term version. They immediately think of Harry Stack Sullivan. And that for other people, if you say psychoanalysis, they think of Freud. Or if you say attachment theory, you think of John Bowlby. Well, for some people, when you say interpersonal therapy, they think of Harry Stack Sullivan. Then there's this other usage for the term that I'll get into later, which has to do with neurobiology and Dan Siegel and these people. And then the the fourth usage of this term that I'll mention is that it's just a amorphous umbrella of therapies that emphasize relationships and attachment. And this is how I have been using it this whole time. What I've been saying, I'm an interpersonal therapist. I'm I've been referring to basically the psychodynamic attachment, uh, relational oriented contemporary therapy theory. But really, again, I I think after reviewing all the literature, I think I'm more aptly described as an attachment-based therapist. But anyway, and there are other terms for this bigger umbrella. They'll they'll call it relational psychodynamic theory or intersubjective. Sometimes you'll hear, and that's a whole other field is intersubjective therapy. So uh, so that so those are the kind of four main usages and and as I again as I was going into all the literature I was getting annoyed with this because I was like okay so there's this short term interpersonal therapy but that's definitely not what I'm doing there's Harry Stack Sullivan whom I really like but who I really like but I don't I don't follow Harry Stack Sullivan's particular theory and then and then I was like, well, relational psychodynamic theory, I'm definitely into that, but that's not really what describes me anyway. Maybe there's nothing that really descri- you know, in a short again, the 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 best way I would describe myself as a psychodynamic systemic humanistic feminist collaborative attachment-based therapist, <laughs> but it doesn't roll off the tongue. All right, so let's go into the history here. So every all roads lead back to Freud, and I suppose by extension uh, Charcot and Genet, but let's start with Freud in the nineteen or the eighteen eighties. So Freud was uh, became prominent in the early 20, 20th century, but he started off in the eighteen eighties, going into the nineteen thirties in Vienna. So in a nutshell, and again, it's much more complicated than this, but in a nutshell, 
uh, psychoanalysis was extremely dominant for for many decades, and, and still people use it today, and I use part of it today. But in a nutshell, Freud's eventual theory said that the id, you know, we have the superego, the ego, and the id. And the way to think about this is that the ego is the self you could think of as, as, as our conscious self or our motive, our sort of intentional self. And then we have an id, which is the part of our biological brain that has all these drives for selfishness and sex and destruction and anger you know, primitive, what we would call primitive or what they might call primitive uh, drives for, you know, this is mine and you, I'm going to get you and I'm going to have sex with you and, you know, all these kinds of, these kinds of drives. And then we have the superego that we internalize from our parents and our, and society to keep our id in check. So the superego and the id are in a constant battle and the ego has to figure out how to act and how to uh, mediate between essentially the superego and the id. So in a, in a nutshell or a you know a simple example, you are your boss is criticizing you and you have an urge to punch him in the face or you have an urge to just you know flip the table over and say screw it I leave I quit. But then your superego says, no, you got to be responsible. You need to keep your job. You can't do that. Even if you wanted to quit, you need to not burn this bridge. And so then your ego is sitting there in the middle going like, okay, superego is telling me to be responsible and to just suck it up and take it. My id is saying I want to flip the table over and punch this a-hole in the face. What do I do? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to... And a lot of this can be unconscious, by the way, but a lot of it usually is, is I'm going to suck it up right now and I'm going to smile and nod my head, but then I'm going to go home and I'm going to get super drunk to act out my anger. Or I'm going to yell at my spouse as a displacement of my anger towards my boss. Or I'm going to go home and talk about it and cry as a way of sublimating this 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 feeling. And... So those are all the defenses against these conflicts that we have within us. And that's why they call it psychodynamic is because there's these dynamic forces, you know, like the dynamic forces of weather where you have, you know, high pressure and low pressure and wind and, and, and moisture and, and the sun and all the, you know, all these things, all these dynamics that are pushing against each other. And in your mind, you have all these forces pushing against each other, you know, in a dynamic way, and they're affecting each other. And they're in, often in opposition, and, and these defenses will crop up as a way of sort of managing all that. And so, um, so anyway, that's the early Freudian psychodynamic theory in a nutshell. And, uh, and also development was in this sexual, psychosexual way, the oral phase and the anal phase and all this kind of stuff. And this has to do with pleasure and without going into the weeds. The thing I need to mention here in, in terms of this discussion, this, this lecture, is that relationships and attachment don't matter much according to early Freudian theory. It's much more about what's going on inside the patient. And pathology emerges from problems within the client's psyche. Problems don't emerge from relationships. They emerge because of these inner dynamics that are 
conflicting with each other. You have drives and superegos and egos and defenses, and and you you have these things that have to be balanced out. And we're born with these drives, and there's no recognition of a drive for relationships. And generally speaking, the therapy was at a distant. The relationship between therapist and client doesn't really matter. Um, it's more complicated than that. And Freud actually had a lot of different. He said a lot of things. Is the thing, and and you can't really pigeonhole him. But in general, at least the way that uh, Freudians walked away with the lessons is basically what I'm saying right now. And by unearthing people's ids, by helping people to go into their unconscious and talk about it, they will release that energy a little bit, and there won't. It'll make it so that people don't have to have unknown dynamics happening. It's better to look at something, and this is the idea, you know, you're like an archaeologist. Freud really loved archaeology, by the way, and so you're like, this, and you're digging up things, you're, and in by free association and therapy, you're trying to figure out, you know, so if we have this, that client that had the boss that was yelling at him, and uh, he's in psychoanalysis, and he's on the couch, and the you know psychoanalyst says okay free associate and they they oh my boss I just hate him I hate him so much and and but you know I need to keep my job and and I don't know why he's criticizing me all the time and the the hope there from the analyst is that you know, it's hard to say I'll I'll with specifics but one possible road to recovery for the you know say the individual is having a hard time sleeping at night or. They're having depression or anxiety as a result of this uh, impasse in their psyche that that needs to be unearthed. And so through this unearthing by looking at themselves and free associating and, and with the analysts pointing out like, huh, do, do you want to kill your boss? That would be a very Freudian thing to ask. It would be, uh, I'm just, you know, I'm just wondering, do you, do you have aggressive urges where you want to murder you have you have fantasies of murdering your boss or something and the idea is is that if the uh, if the client if the patient is able to really look at that and say hmm actually yeah i guess i do want to murder my my boss then it dissipates that energy by by actually expressing it and and allowing it to live in your mind and in the world by telling someone else, you take away the power of it. And then the aggression will subside and the person will be able to sleep at night and, and this sort of thing. And the way that Freud saw this was that it's because the the conscious mind is is unearthing the unconscious. And by doing that, it it dissipates the energy, for lack of a better term. But All right, so now let's go to Sandor Ferenczi. So this is a Hungarian psychoanalyst, and Ferenczi should be a household name, but, but often is not. Uh, he was in prominence in the 1920s, and he was a younger colleague of Freud. One could say he was a student of Freud in a sense, but you could also say he was a colleague, but a younger one, a less experienced one. And Ferenczi had a lot of different thoughts and a lot of different writings, but in a nutshell, he disagreed with Freud in a number of ways. He actually found that relationships do matter and found that empathy actually helps patients. So instead of analyzing from a distance, Ferenczi found that, you know, if if you just express empathy and care for your clients, things tend to go better. And I 
kind of feel like relationships are important to to these people that that when we improve their relationships, their symptoms go down. Instead of going into their brain, we probably should go into their relationships. Now, Ferenczi also was a psychoanalyst and de- definitely was fully on board with, board with the Freudian notions, but but he definitely did differ in some of those ways. Some of the most wonderful work in psychoanalysis, by the way, are people disagreeing with Freud, like Karen Horney and other kinds of people just being like, okay, I get Freud, there's some genius in there, but the Freudian theory and Sigmund Freud himself seem to be ignoring a few things here. And that's, you know, Jung actually, um, his whole theory was basically derived in that beginning anyway of of just like, "Mm, I don't think, I don't think Sigmund really gets the whole picture and and then develops his own, his own theory. But anyway, so Ferenczi is, is an important figure in what is considered to be interpersonal or even attachment-based therapy because of this very early in the 1920s, recognizing that in, that relationships are important, that empathy is important. Okay. There were others at the time, but Ferenczi is the most prominent that I could mention. Then you have the object relationalists. So this is Melanie Klein, Fairburn, Winnicott. I did a whole episode on Donald Winnicott, a whole deep dive. You can listen to that. And again, you can go to the website to, for all the archive. So these individuals are in Britain and uh, in a nutshell for object relations. And object relations is incredibly complicated. It's almost annoyingly complicated. Um, but in a nutshell, uh, objects, when, when you hear object relations, think person relations. So it, for Freud, he saw objects as people, the reason why we call them objects is because they're the object of one's drives. So if you have a drive for aggression or a drive for sex, then you will target an object, right? You will target your mother or your spouse or something with your sexual drive. You'll target your boss with the aggression drive, that sort of thing. And so what the object relationalists came along and said, you know, actually... The relationship with those objects is important. You know, these objects aren't just targets for a a drive for a for an id impulse. These objects are actually important, meaning these people are important. The relationships with these people. So when you hear object relations, it's actually the name is trying to emphasize uh, interpersonal relationships, but it sounds weird because it's object relations. There's also the idea of objects being in your mind that we will in, in internalize objects when, in, in a nutshell, not everyone sees it this way, but I talk about this a lot in, with my students and I think about it a lot, is that when, you will, uh, when you're in a relationship with someone like your parents or something, you are observing yourself and you're observing the other and you're internalizing these two objects relating to each other as a diet. You're, you're internalizing your, your perspective of yourself and your perception of the other, and you're internalizing the whole, the whole object relation, you know, because you can actually have a self-object in that you observe the self, and uh, the self-object is something you observe and perceive. Anyway, point is, is that the object relations came along, Klein, Fairburn, Winnicott, and others, and said that you know, objects weren't just targets for our, jive, for our drives and that the quality of early relationships will actually 
uh, shape our our personality. Um, now, this was the first theory that I actually really loved. Of the theories that I was exposed to in a family therapy degree, I found that object relations family therapy was what I really liked. But at this point, I hadn't been exposed to attachment theory. I hadn't been exposed to interpersonal theory. And object relations was just the closest thing. Eventually, I would call myself a psychodynamic family therapist of psychodynamic systems. And then I started writing a book called Psychodynamic Systems. And then I found interpersonal therapy, of which I thought was, I thought I understood it, but I don't think I really did. (laughs) And then I found attachment theory through interpersonal theory, actually. through interpersonal, a lot of people in my field find attachment theory through emotional emotional focus therapy, but I did not because I never really thought emotion focus therapy was really my thing. I mean, the the premise is great, but I just the delivery I, I found it to be just kind of not my thing. Anyway, all right. So we had Freud, we had Fidenzi, we had the object relations people in Britain, and now let's come. Let's go to America. Let's go to Harry Stack Sullivan in the United States. So Harry Stack Sullivan, a New York psychotherapist, came to prominence in the 1940s. By the way, he was gay and had to be closeted, so that's an interesting detail about him. Uh, So Harry Stack Sullivan should be a household name in psychotherapy. He was way before his time, even today. There are things that you can read about Harry Stack Sullivan's understanding of humans and about his recommendations for everyone that we still need to be listening to. And he is seen as starting the movement to regard relationships as central to human psychological functioning. So even though we had the object relationists and even though we had Ferenzi and, and others, Harry Stack Sullivan really established, look, we need to be looking at relationships in a much more uh, focused way. We need to be putting relationships at the highest tier of our focus, if that makes any sense. Anyway, as a clinician, similar to Fidenzi, he was compassionate and sensitive. And he is, uh, at the time, he was considered to be a genius when it came to understanding personality. So by the way, everyone I've been talking about so far were definitely in the Freudian camp. They are, they're seen as, including Harry Stack Sullivan, they're all seen as being in the under the umbrella of psychoanalysis. Now, another thing to think about here is that there wasn't really much psychotherapy going on beyond beyond psychoanalysis up until uh, like the 60s and 50s, you know, maybe the 70s. So to say that someone was a psychoanalyst is kind of like just saying that they were a therapist for the time. But anyway... Uh, Harry Stack Sullivan was definitely a Freudian, but broke away from Freud in some significant ways and really rejected the foundational features of Freud, which is that uh, we are all born with these biologically, uh, with these biological drives in our libido, you know, our id. We, uh, Harry Stack Sullivan was like, no, 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 we're not bored with this desire to kill and this desire to have sex with things and to to uh, be selfish. We're not, we're not born that way. Um, and this was a very dominant idea at the time, the, and still is to some extent. 
Um, but in the 40s, particularly, this idea that someone would come along and say, mm, I, I don't know if I agree with that. It was, it was akin to, um, you know, sacrilege. And, uh, but he did. And he thought, but, but he, so he, he thought that Freud was right about a lot of things, but he just said, you know, we need to situate all of Freud's ideas through relationships. And he tried to kind of revamp Freudian theory in his own way. But so in a nutshell, Harry Stack Sullivan, um, he believed that we all have a need for love and for power in relationships. This isn't his words, but um, but I, I'm going to put it into my words. So essentially, he he believed that we don't have a drive for sex. Uh, I mean, we might have a, a need for sex, kind of, but our, our primary needs as humans, emotionally speaking, are for love, meaning relationships and attachment, and for power and relationships. But the word power in this context is more akin to safety, that we are uh, – well, I'll get into more of that later – and so when we don't have these needs met, we feel anxiety, we feel fear. And that fear results in all sorts of weird behaviors and problems that we see psychiatrically. So we're, we're constantly, according to Sullivan, on a spectrum between total fear and total rela- relaxation. We're, we're always somewhere on that spectrum. And as fear increases, we uh, when we're physically threatened or... Uh, we're socially threatened, so we both that's so we both have physical threats, like someone's going to attack us physically, or social threats where someone's going to reject us. Both of those situations will increase fear, and this is actually pretty genius. And I still see the world. I I kind of landed on this myself, you know, as I lecture to students all the time. I'm always kind of refining as they ask more questions. I'm more, I'm always refining, and I. I found that this to I, I I believe this this notion of Sullivan's, which is that we obviously have a fear response when someone is trying to kill us or trying to hurt us physically, but we have the exact same fear when someone is going to reject us socially. Now we don't frame it that way in society because it's like, well, if someone's going to stab you, yeah, that makes sense that you're afraid. But if someone's going to criticize you on Twitter, who cares about that? Or if your spouse is going to not be very close to you all the time, you know, you need to be independent. You know, when, if someone's going to stab you with a knife and you're scared, not a lot of people are like, you need to be independent. You need to, like, not worry. You're weak because you're afraid. In a situation. Most people wouldn't look at someone that was afraid of being stabbed as weak, right? You'd be like, well, of course I'm afraid of being stabbed. I don't get stabbed. But our society frames the the feeling of fear that we get with rejection and social distance, we equate that with being weak. I could, you know, identify the patriarchy in here of uh, the ideas of toxic masculinity being in there of just like independence and not depending on other people and emotions are bad and all these kinds of things. Relationships are for the weak, you know, the independent strong hero that doesn't need anyone. And so we have this idea and, and so, but the same fear is there, and, and Sullivan saw that. Sullivan saw, look, yeah, we're all afraid physically of being harmed, but we have tremendous natural inbred fear of distance and of rejection from other people. He didn't word it this way, and I'm kind of sprinkling in my own as a contemporary attachment language, but anyway. And so 
when we're young, we learn how to deal with this fear and how to deal with these needs from family and society. And society and family teach us how to use relationships to lower our anxiety. So Sullivan thought that when we're young, both our family and the broader society, uh, we will learn, okay, when I'm afraid of rejection, this is what I'm supposed to do to soothe that anxiety. I talk about it, I reach out, or I distance myself, or I drink to make the problems go away, or I become compulsive and will stack blocks over and over again because that distracts me. There's all this different um, uh, learning that goes on as a child of like, okay, when I'm afraid, both physically and socially, this is what I do. This is what my family does. This is what my society taught me to do. And this pattern of coping with this anxiety becomes the basis for our personality or what Sullivan called our self-system. And this is our system for perceiving and managing fear of harm and distance, essentially. So his theory is much more complicated than this, but he also believed that within relationships, we are constantly negotiating our needs with each other through communication. So he was very keen on understanding communication, how it's interpreted, how we talk to each other. And this is another important idea that most of us just take for granted today. I'm just like, well, of course, communication is is a key understanding to emotional well-being. But this was kind of a novel idea at the time. Also, that deviant behavior, problematic behavior in individuals is a consequence of disordered relationships and disordered communication. So in order to help people to not have deviant behavior, then we have to help them with their relationships and we have to help them with their communication. Again, this was pretty novel at the time in the 40s, pretty pretty important idea. Uh, Harry Stack Sullivan could also be considered uh, not only one of the pioneers of what we now call interpersonal therapy or even attachment-based therapy, but he also could be considered the grandfather of family systems theory because he's talking about communication and society and how people come together, um, along with Nathan Ackerman and uh, others uh, around the time. But for me, since I'm a family therapist myself, the people I consider to be the grandfathers of my field are Harry Stack Sullivan and Nathan Ackerman. Um, And by the way, Harry Stack Sullivan trained Murray Bowen and Don Jackson, two of the founders of contemporary family systems theory. So um, it's uh, it's an important through line to today that Harry Stack Sullivan began. Okay. So again, we talked about Ferenzi and Freud and object relations and gave Harry Stack Sullivan his time in the sun a little bit. Then you had humanistic therapy. And this came to prominence in the 1950s. It's often called the third force in psychotherapy, the first force being behaviorism and the second force being psychoanalysis and its offshoots, like object relations. And then you have the third force, which which is humanistic therapy. Basically, at the time in the 50s, there was a movement among many therapists saying, okay, behaviorism is great and psychoanalysis is great, but we need something more here. And Maslow put it well when he said that 
you know, if, if Freud provided us with the sick half of the human mind, we must fill it out with the healthy half. So humanistic th- theory was trying to say, okay, great, sure, there's psychopathology, but what about well-being and happiness? And this is where positive psychology basically got its, got its start. And by the way, the fourth force in psychotherapy is considered to be culture, understanding that our psyches are shaped by our cultural context. So those are the, the different forces. Sometimes the fourth force is also considered to be postmodernism and understanding that as a clinician, we're not objective. And in fact, Harry Stack Sullivan saw this as well. Um, way back in the 1940s, he was like, so this notion that the therapist is somehow objective and outside of what's happening is absurd. The therapist is also a human being and involved. And so um, anyway, so humanistic therapy comes in the 1950s, considered the third force. These are people like Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, James Bugenthal, and then family therapists in the 1970s, 1980s. Virginia Satir, I did a whole deep dive on her, Carl, Carl Ritiker. And it's hard to lock down what humanistic therapy really is because it's so many different things, and each figure had their own charismatic take on it. And it wasn't really until later that we kind of lumped them in together as humanistic therapists. But if I were to boil it down, at least to the parts that I like, is that humanistic therapy believes that humans are inherently good, and humans know how to be healthy if the barriers are removed. And by listening to people and by helping people to express themselves, then they will naturally gravitate towards health. That we, you know, the psychoanalyst is tinkering with the mind, if you think about it that way. I mean, you could argue that psychoanalysis was, was also just trying to remove barriers for people, but a, a lot of people considered psychoanalysts to be diving into the mind and trying to dislodge something that's bad. Whereas the humanistic therapist said, no, everyone is inherently good and everyone is inherently healthy. They've only just had things get in the way, often society telling them that they're, they, sh- they should be ashamed of who they are, that, that they should be something that they're not, that they should uh, force themselves to be something that isn't congruent with who they really are, that they should feel something different than which is congruent with themselves. And so the humanistic therapist is interested in, in you the, the good you, and they want that you to be heard and seen and express themselves to be authentic, to be here and now. Uh, humanistic therapists were very interested in, in the here and now. Like, forget about the past, and, and you know, that's past is there, and forget about the future, and forget about this notion that there's something wrong with you. Who are you right now? Tell me. Be spontaneous. Be yourself, you know. And this expression of yourself is good emotions are good you know this is eventually became very popular in the 70s as you can tell you know with just the the sort of me generation it fit really quite nicely with that but the humanistic therapy is wonderful and again it's it's part of my overall my my long string of thing you know i'm a psychodynamic systemic humanistic feminist collaborative attachment-based therapist and collaborative is a whole field it's not just an adjective it's a collaborative therapy is a whole thing but anyway so I could go on and on about humanistic therapy, but that's it in a nutshell. Again, 
not very interested in relationships. It's it sort of, but not at its center. Really, what it's interested in is is the self, the self being actualized. You've heard of self actualization. Well, that comes from humanistic therapy. It's about helping the self to express themselves, to feel okay with themselves, self esteem, uh, be you know those kinds of things. It's not really focused on relationships. Now, I would say that humanistic therapy, and I've said this before, <laughs> that humanistic therapy is very much about relationships, but it's sort of inadvertent in that humanistic therapists were very empathic and they listened very well. Carl Rogers, for example, just really, really good listeners. To them, what they were doing was through this action of empathy and listening, you're actually helping the client to discover the self, to self-actualize, to actualize their true self. And when they did that, people are less anxious, they're less depressed, this kind of thing. But what I would say is that in those moments, as Carl Rogers and others are really listening to their clients, the relationship between the therapist and the client is a secure attachment and that that secure attachment that you know with the therapist being very attuned to the client then that's when change happens it's not helping someone to self actualize it's actually giving someone a secure attachment but that's not how they saw it i would even go back to freud and say the fact that freud was digging into someone's unconscious was a, a distant second to what was really being uh, appreciated and was really the change agent for the clients, which was that Freud listened. He sat with people and said, you can say whatever you want and I will accept you. Everything in here is acceptable. Even your most darkest, deepest fantasies that, that you should be ashamed of in modern society, I accept you. I like you. Keep coming back. I get you. I understand you. Freud didn't see it this way. Freud saw it as, well, who cares about the relationship? It's about what I'm unearthing in the unconscious. But if you think about it, imagine sitting there, you're completely alone in a society that doesn't want to hear you talk about anything, you know, in a Victorian uh, uh, or a Europe, Europe a culture that is very anti a lot of things. And you're talking to someone about all your feelings and, and, they don't hate you and they don't slap you across the face and they don't judge you. Imagine how good that would feel. It, how attuned you would feel, how, how secure you would feel. It's like, I, I can say anything to this person and they, they still like me. That's such a big deal. So, uh, in, in similar to Harry Stack Sullivan, he's just like, well, yeah, Freud was a genius, but I, we need to see what he was doing through a relational lens, not, through this lens that Freud thought he was seeing things. And there's a lot of things in therapy that are like this to me, that I'll, I'll look at other therapy, even cognitive behavioral therapy often. I'll say like, yeah, cognitive therapy is great and behavioral therapy is very useful. And I incorporate those as well. If I had a longer title, you know, I would say I'm a, I'm a feminist, psychodynamic, cognitive, behavioral, you know, I'd list the whole thing because I think it all has value. But a lot of times I wonder if cognitive therapy is really helpful because the therapist and the client have a secure attachment and that the client finally feels attuned to and understood by someone that's not judging them and not talking about their own lives. It's just really – anyway, so, so that's humanistic therapy. And then you have John Bowlby. Uh, listen, you know, you've, if you've been a patron recently, you've been listening to the deep dives on attachment theory. 
John Bowlby came into prominence in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, basically what John Bowlby did is he just completely upended everything and said, I'm going to throw everything else out. (laughs) One, because I don't know if it has any empirical value and attachment theory has a ton of empirical findings that, that support it. But also because it, it's all just a bunch of silliness, really. Now, John Bowlby was definitely trying to appeal to Freudians and because probably because they just dominated the field so much and to, just to have any kind of career, you needed to be accepted by the Freudians. But, but anyway, you could say that Sullivan and everyone before him, Ferenzi and everyone, they, they still thought that people were individuals, they still, you know, Harry Stack Sullivan, even, even him, still basically saw people as individuals and in that when you have a problem of psychopathology in an individual, you have to basically figure out how to treat that individual. Now, I'm quite positive that if Harry Stack Sullivan or Freud were alive today, then they wouldn't think this way anymore because they wouldn't have the benefit of, of all the rigorous philosophy and research that's come out. But anyway... But Sullivan and everyone before him, uh, they, you know, they thought that relationships might be important, and Sullivan included really thought relationships important. But we were using relationships to get our individual needs met. Sullivan thought our relationships were mainly a way to avoid anxiety. But Bowlby proposed that we have an instinctual need for relational anxiety, that a central feature of our biology and our evolution is relationships, that we need to have secure relationships with people. It's a central feature of our biology, our our emotions, our behaviors. Lots of things are centered around gaining proximity to other people. You know, again, going back to Sullivan, although he was going in the right direction, he still was thinking, well, but the central thing we need to focus on is that anxiety spectrum, you know, from very feeling very anxious to feeling very relaxed. And we use relationships to lower that anxiety. But Bobby was like, no, the relationship is the anxiety. The relationship is the drive. We don't have a drive to reduce our anxiety. We have a drive to relate to other people. And it is a bit of a semantic thing, but I do find it to be a lot more compelling the way that Bowlby put it. Now, Bowlby was building on uh, the work of everyone else, including Sullivan himself. But but anyway, so that was Bowlby, and listen to my whole deep dive on him, uh, and I'll go into more of that later. But then you have interpersonal neurobiology, as I was mentioning early, earlier. So interpersonal neurobiology came around in the 1990s, developed by Dan Siegel at UCLA, and it's interesting that you see this progression from Vienna and Hungary, and then we end up in Britain a little bit later, and then we end up on the east coast of the United States a little bit later. And now we're all the way on the west coast of the United States. It's this wave of innovative thinking really being pushed farther and farther west. Maybe in Hawaii, they'll be the next genius, and then Japan, they'll be the next genius. Who knows? But anyway, so interpersonal neurobiology is integrating attachment theory, biology, trauma, brain science. So 
a lot of brain science advances were made in the 80s and 90s. And so uh, people who really saw the light regarding attachment theory and trauma were like, okay, well, now let's try to figure out what's going on neurologically and let's describe it neurologically. Because up until this point, we didn't have the ability to to see the brain with any kind of resolution in terms of what it's doing. It was it just things went in and things came out. But after, you know, with the ability to, to measure things a little bit more precisely, we can see how the brain actually operates and, and we can uh, describe attachment theory and psychopathology through uh, neurobiology terms. And then Dan Siegel comes along and he's like, well, I love attachment theory. I love interpersonal therapy. I love relationships. Uh, I, you know, I'm into that. And I'm also into neurobiology. And so, so let's, you know, let's put the two together. And so concept, and this is a pretty detailed, complicated, it's very technical, obviously, but general concepts within interpersonal neurobiology are obviously attachment both physical proximity and emotional proximity to others. And that early brain development happens within the relational context. There's also mirror neurons that we will have emotional resonance with other people, that when we're in sync emotionally with other people, our brains actually act differently. It's like the way I like to think about it is why do we like to – uh, dance in in sync with each other? Why do we like to be in a choir where we're all singing the same song? Why do we, when, when I'm in a band and m- my band is playing and we're all in sync, why do I, why does it feel so good? Why does it feel so good to have someone understand me so well? Why does it feel so good to be on the same page with someone? It just, it just feels good. We have this drive for being in sync <clears throat> With other humans, we have this this need that we evolved to uh, promote social syncitude, if you will. You know, think about an early tribe of humans. When we're in sync with each other, we work better, we hunt better, we sleep better, and that's and we have all these neurons that are uh, paying attention to what other people are doing. Also having mirror neurons and being in sync with others helps with mimicry, which is very important for children to do. We're, you know, we're extremely cultural creatures without culture, meaning without passing knowledge from older people to younger people, our species would die very quickly. We're one of the few, and there are others, there are birds and other primates that do this as well. And other advanced animals along these lines. Well, a part of the survival mechanisms that we evolved are this ability for or this drive to teach younger people things and the drive for younger people to mimic older people. So uh, it's there's a lot of neurobiology involved in this and, and they've done all this, um, you know, empirical observations of like one of the things that it's a common neuro, mirror neuron study that when you, and I won't go into the details on how they actually study this because it's actually kind of barbaric in terms uh, they were experimenting on primates but other primates but essentially when we see someone doing something our brain is going through the motions as if we were doing it too so for example if if we're really watching someone and we're really in sync with them and they pick up a ball 
the same neurons in our brain will go off as if we actually picked up the ball. The same motor neurons will actually fire. It, it doesn't translate into actual movement, but we, what we see, we can actually uh, interpret what we're seeing and through some kind of motor empathy, some movement empathy, we, can, we just automatically will have these neurons fire in our own brains. And this is why when people will be practicing, you can practice by visual, visualization and have pretty good outcomes uh, even though you didn't physically do it. Like uh, there's all these experiments of you can visualize shooting a free throw in basketball and making it and improve your your shot um, the same as if you actually physically uh, practiced it. So, there, uh, uh, you know, actual brain scientists are probably throwing their phones at the wall right now because I'm of my sort of simplistic understanding of this. But that's the whole notion. But anyway, and, and, and mapping that on to Bowlby's attachment theory, understanding trauma this way, understanding integration of the brain, understanding how why does exposure therapy work? Why does psychotherapy work neuro, neuro, neurologically? And so interpersonal neurobiology, emotional regulation is a big part of interpersonal neurobiology. Now, for me, uh, I appreciate Dan Siegel and, and Cozzolino and, and um, I can't remember the other guy's name, Alan Shore, I believe, and all the others. And I love their writing and I read it, but it's, it just doesn't really get me because I'm, I get it that there's a whole brain science explanation, but it doesn't change anything for me. Um, it doesn't really, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of connection that we can make from brain science to all this stuff that helps a little bit of understanding, but it doesn't really, uh, to me, uh, understanding things through essentially an extension of Bowlby's research and, and Ainsworth and, and all the others uh, is enough for me. I don't, I don't need brain science to help me out with that. Okay, so that brings us up to the current day. Uh, some other notable pit, uh, bus stops along the way are relational psychoanalysis. Relational psychoanalysis came into prominence in the 1980s in the United States. Essentially, the way I see it is that psychoanalysis was falling out of style. And a lot of people within psychoanalysis were like, well, how do we salvage things? Because the Freudian notions are, they don't really seem to resonate with anyone, including ourselves. So how do we how do we revamp psychoanalysis? And so that's where relational psychoanalysis came into play. Many had discovered Harry Stack Sullivan, object relations theory, and John Bowlby, and they said, you know, maybe we should actually look at those people instead of thinking them as as uh, you know sacrilegious individuals and and also and incorporate that into psychoanalysis. And I think they did it pretty well. Uh, there are some people that. Um, I know who are very much into relational psychoanalysis and, and um, when they talk, you know, I'm, I'm pretty compelled by the way they see the world. It's similar to the way I see the world. They just describe it differently. Um, there's definitely a lot of social constructionism in there. And, uh, but anyway, which I enjoy, but anyway. Uh, so yeah, they finally came around to basically saying, mm, I don't know about the sexual stages of early childhood and, these aggressive drives and the sexual drives. I don't know about all that. You know, yeah, I think we are motivated toward attachment security. And so they basically just ad 
adapted psychoanalysis to to fit attachment theory in their way. And I, you know, I commend them for doing that. Other notable figures that not only within what we would call interpersonal psychotherapy, but also uh, the precursors, you know, people like Ferenczi, these kinds of So you have Frida Fromm-Reichman, you have Mabel Blake Cohen, you have Margaret Mailer, you have Gregory Bateson with the communication thing. You have Adolf Meyer, Eric Fromm, Henry Murray, you have Karen Horney, Hans Strupp, uh, and Lorna Benjamin, and Irvin Yalom, who I actually interviewed on this podcast a few years ago. So essentially all these people, everyone that I've been mentioning so far, all these clinicians discussed how problems in relationships can cause psychological issues and that relationships form our personality and that attachment matters and that social support matters. And to this day, this is still kind of a novel concept, you know, uh, not in my anecdotal experience. And even according to the research, a lot of people in my field don't really consider relationships to be that important. They might not even think it's important at all. You know, cognitive therapists, they're not concerned with relationships. They're concerned with how you think. Behavioral therapists, they're not concerned with relationships generally. They're concerned with reinforcement. Now, I would absolutely say that reinforcement and behavioral uh, aspects of our lives um, are very much within attachment theory. You know, it, you just have to understand what our needs are. If you come from a patriarchal point of view and that dependency is stupid and or weak or something, then as a behaviorist, you're going to be looking at, well, how do I help to promote independence? How do we reward independence? So you, you have someone that you have a kid that's very clingy. And so you're trying to, you're trying to reward independence. And so when the kid manages to sleep in their room by themselves, you give them a toy. And as a behaviorist, it might work because you might actually, you might actually succeed in kind of training the kid to sleep in their own room by themselves. But as an attachment based behaviorist, you would look at it and say, well, the child has a need for it, for closeness. And so how about we reward the kid with a lot of closeness during the day so that they can sleep in their own room at night? Or how can we make the kid feel emotionally secure, emotionally proximal, such that the kid will survive in a room by themselves at night so that they can survive the physical lack of proximity? So let's reward the kid with secure relationships, with secure attachments and emotional proximity when the kid manages to give the parents a break by sleeping in their own room. So you can use behaviorism and still be within or without reality, <laughs> the way I'd put it. And if you're only a behaviorist and you're kind of the, the standard, what I might call patriarchal behaviorist, then you're going to miss the mark a lot of times. And so you can you can absolutely still be a cognitive behavioral therapist, but you have to see reality. You have to understand the reality of human needs, which the patriarchy for a number of, of centuries has been clouding over the reality of humans, which is that we're, we're very dependent animals, we're very social animals, we're very needy animals, we're very emotional animals, and that those things are there for a reason. And when we're clingy, it's not a pesky behavior that's uh, a childish thing that needs to be beaten out of someone. 
It is an expression of a need that is not being met, and if we meet the need, then the clinging will stop. So other fields that actually uh, contributed to the modern understanding of interpersonal or even attachment-based therapy are within the field of social psychology, and there's a lot of theories that we can point to as, as related things that were developed earlier. Things like social exchange theory. So social exchange theory is the idea that if the costs of a relationship are higher than the rewards, then the relationship may be abandoned. So we do this all the time. We're thinking, you know what, I'm pursuing this person and uh, the, the, the cost of the rejection and the cost of the energy to pursue this person is so great that, and this person is never reciprocating, and so I'm going to abandon the relationship. Or uh, I'm in a relationship with my spouse and I give my spouse love and my spouse gives me love back. And so there's a social exchange there and it's worth it. And so I don't want to leave that relationship. So that's another important uh, idea within social psychology that relates to interpersonal attachment-based therapy. Another theory is balance theory, that we're driven towards psychological balance. And in relationships... They can throw us off psychological balance, and so we're we're um, we're always seeking that. The other theory is attribution theory: is we're always attempting to explain ca- our causal relationships. Everything that happens in our lives, we're we're you know going back to the conspiracy theories I was talking about earlier. Is you have someone that is in a town that is of a particular political leaning. And everyone around them shares their point of view and votes the same way. And then something happens where their president doesn't win. And so they're thinking, well, how could that happen? How could all of us who have the right thing to think and we're voting the right way, how can something, how could another president get elected? Well, there must be there must be a reason for that, you know. It, it can't be that my ideas aren't popular because my ideas are perfect. It can't be that, uh, you know, blah blah blah. There's all these other sort of rational ideas. It's got to be something else, and and it's got to be a conspiracy. It's got to be some uh, lizard people trying to get us, you know, <laughs> and, and and literally, you know. And so we're always trying to attribute causes to things because we have a really hard time dealing with things that are that are one, unknown to us, and two, complex. When we were uh, in our early, you know, centuries ago and we saw stars in the sky, we tried to figure out why are there stars in the sky. And so there are all these different wrong explanations as to why there are stars in the sky. Why do some stars move across the sky and then loop back? And then, you know, there are, we just, we, we're constantly uh, attributing cause cause to things. You know, I, I'm in pain or I I feel lost in, in my life. Why? A lot of you will email me and just be like, I, I don't know what's happening to me. Why is this happening to me? And and that's, you know, a good thing, I think, to pursue because when we know why, then we can know what to do about it. But we have a drive to try to explain everything. Anything that happens, we, we're always trying to, to draw a causal relationship. So, for example, it's like, okay, I got a bad grade. Well, and the other thing about this is is we will look toward causal relationships that seem satisfying to us emotionally. And so, you know, I got a bad grade. Why did I get a bad grade in, in class? 
well, it can't be because I didn't study enough. It can't be because I'm not smart enough. It must be because my teacher was unfair. Or to be specific to attachment theory, it's, you know, I'm, I'm sad right now. And the reason why I'm sad, why am I so sad? Well, it's because I'm too clingy and I'm too dependent on other people. And so if I pull away from other people, I'll be less sad. But then that doesn't work, you know. You also have social reinforcement theory, which is when we get positive attention for a behavior, we tend to repeat it and vice versa. So this is obvious to me, but it needs its own theory, which is social reinforcement theory, which is that we are human beings. Rewards are, uh, you know, part of our reward structure involves social reinforcement, meaning someone says good job or someone pats you on the back, or someone smiles at you and says, oh, I like what you're doing, or just someone literally says, I like what you're doing. When we get social reinforcement, we repeat it. That you know, reinforcement isn't just things like giving someone a treat or giving someone a toy. Uh, and this is the way that all parenting is, is revolved around, is if you had to give your kid a treat, like a cookie or a toy every time they did something good, you know, your house would be filled to the brim with treats and toys. Most of parenting reinforcement for shaping a child's behavior is social reinforcement of good job. I, I, you're such a big boy or you're such a good guy that you did, you know, all, or just a smile like, oh, thank you for doing that. You know, the, the notion of just saying thank you is trying, is a overt way of trying to shape other people's behavior. Anyway, so that, has to do with with uh, attachment theory and that when we are in relationships with other people we are one we're seeking reinforcement from them and two when they when they thank us or when they reciprocate then it will shape our behavior because we're very socially oriented in this way if we were truly meant to be independent creatures we wouldn't care and we wouldn't be affected by social reinforcement but we very very much are um, and game theory also relates, which I won't go into. Um, and then role theory. Role theory is, you know, we're always within a social role. We're, every At every moment, like right now, I am in the role of podcaster. And so in this role, there are certain neurons and systems of the brain that are operating in a, in a role-like way. Like if suddenly something happened, you know, and this happens sometimes, and you might actually be able to relate to this where you're working real hard and because you might be in a lockdown, you're working from home. And then all of a sudden your spouse walks in and wants to ask you a question about dinner or something and shifting roles from work mode to spouse mode might be really hard. And you might actually have a hard time with it. You might be like, why are you go away? Like, or I don't even know how to process that question because I'm in work mode. So right now I'm in podcaster mode and we're, we're always, and it's always social. So a work mode is I'm in work mode because other people need me to be in this, um, in this role. And I'm in spouse mode because my spouse wants me to be in that role. I'm in podcaster mode right now because I know you're out there listening. So these roles greatly influence the way we perceive the world. They affect our emotions and our thoughts and our behaviors and this is going on all the time. And it's one of those things that we have a hard time swallowing because we like to think of ourselves as individuals, but we're not. We're not individuals. We're several individuals that are operating 
at different times given the context that we're in. Think about the self that you exhibit and embody when you're having sex as opposed to when you're talking to your parents, as opposed to when you're um, dancing on the dance floor or as opposed to when you're at work or as opposed to when you're interacting with your children. You know, there are different mindsets, if you will, and our perspective is completely affected by that and our perceptions are, you know, and, and then thus our emotions. And, and so in attachment theory, we are uh, in these different modes and different roles and, and they can both enhance and inhibit and interfere with attachment and relationships. The, the example that I think about with, with role theory that often pops in my head, it that happened years ago, 20, 21 years ago, 24 years ago, I was a young therapist and I, so, Maybe this is a little jag I can go down. So I was working at an agency, and one of the things that would happen is schools would reach out to the mental health agency I was working at and say, you know, we have a bunch of kids at our school who are acting out, and can you can we have a therapist come to the school and get them all to stop acting out in school? <laughs> and so the solution that was often derived by people above me were, well, let's let's send Kirk in and he can do a, a group therapy scenario that will uh, help, you know, change the behavior. And what we called it was anger management, which was a bit dumb really, because it's like the anger was really just the small part of the problem. But anyway, so several times I would go into a high school or a middle school and 20 of the worst kids behaviorally in the whole school would be in a room with me. <laughs> and I, and I'm like, I'm 28, and I have a long ponytail, and uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. And, you know, supervision isn't isn't very robust, and I'm just like, well, I guess I'm just going to kind of wing it. And, you know, trial by fire, and you learn a lot. And I, I, I usually, I learned, well, <laughs> there are a couple instances. There's one instance where this is middle school, and... Um, I was really trying when I first started the group, I thought, you know what, I'm going to be the cool guy because I don't want to be an authority. Um, in fact, that's a big reason why I wanted to become a therapist, because at first I thought I would become a teacher, a music teacher at, in high school or some middle school or something. And I thought, well, but I don't want to wrangle kids. I don't want to be the heavy. I don't want to be the disciplinarian. And so I became a therapist instead. <laughs> and I mean, this is one of the reasons, but so I'm sitting here with all these kids and I'm like, I refuse to be the disciplinarian. I don't want to be that kind. I'm, that's not my job. Um, I'm barely older than they are really. And I just don't want to be, I want to be the cool guy. I want them to like me and to respect me because they like me. And these kids were completely just escalating every week, just getting worse and worse. And I was just losing my mind. And eventually I just screamed and <laughs> not screamed, but yelled loud. You know, I was like, shut the fuck up kind of a thing. And uh, it probably wasn't that aggressive, but something along those lines. Like, hey, everyone, you just shut up. And uh, the group shut up immediately, and everyone looked at me with fear. And for the rest of the group therapy, they were all compliant and obedient. <laughs> it just took me to blowing up once and everything what shifted. But anyway, um, so the role theory example that I want to give is there was this other group I was working as a high school and I can remember it like it was yesterday. And again, 20 kids and just me, and they're all uh, disobedient. And there were two 
two young ladies, two uh, girls who were particularly the ringleaders of this whole uh, disobedience movement against me. <laughs> these these two girls were uh, very mature for their age and very strong, and I don't know how to just 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 very stubborn. And I was just completely at my wits end with this group and I didn't know what to do. And on a whim, I just, I just, I just middle of the group. I just turned to the two girls and I said, you know what? If you're just going to oppose me this whole time, how about you run the fucking class? (laughs) I just said, how about you just, you know, run this fucking group because, uh, I can't do this anymore. And a part of it, I was just exasperated. I was just like, fine, you you want control. Here you go, pal. Go for it. Well, the two girls uh, took them a couple minutes to adjust, but by, within 10 minutes, they were running the class and everyone was listening to them because they were the cool kids at school. They had they had already established themselves as as the cool kids. And, and if anyone stepped out of line, they knew how to stomp them down. <laughs> they knew how to humiliate people very quickly. And I sat there uh, in astonishment a half an hour into it thinking, why didn't I do this before? And so the role theory I- involved in this is that when these two girls were in the role of the defiant fuck up kid, that has to go to this anger management class and be therapized by me, then they act that way. But when they're in the role of being the responsible leader of a class, then they act that way. And this is very important for all of us to understand that behavior is shaped by the role that we're given. If we're given the role of the a-hole and the screw-up and the problematic person, and everyone treats us that, that way and sees us that way, then we act that way. But if we're treated like we're good and we're treated like we're responsible and we're treated like we are capable, then we act capable. It's very important to understand it's proven time and time again. You know, we, I hope you all have heard about the studies involved when you have a group of kids um, of all genders and you say to, uh, and you give a test out to everyone and you say, okay, everyone take this math test then there's a certain distribution of scores. Whereas with another experimental group, you say, um, and by the way, um, we're, we're going to do a math test. And by the way, I know that some of you girls are going to struggle with this because girls aren't as good at math. I can't remember exactly how they engineered it. Maybe they showed a statistic like girls are, are you know, they, they perform not as well as boys do when it comes to math homework. And lo and behold, the girls will perform not as well because they're told your role as a girl is to be bad at math. And then even though they're trying to do well at math, they do worse. So this happens all the time. And what what we often will attribute through attribution theory uh, methods is we'll say, well, boys are born good at math and girls are not. You know, boys are born to do this, but girls are not. Black people are born to do this. White people are born to do this. Do this? No, hundred <laughs> percent no. All right. So we've arrived at the portion of this lecture where I'm going to talk about my take on the theory. And uh, what theory am I describing here? <laughs> I'm describing my theory as influenced by interpersonal theory. 
I guess is the way to put it. Because I find that I could maybe, you know, go down the rabbit hole of Sullivan's theory or go down the rabbit hole of short-term interpersonal or, I don't know, I could do that. But I have a, I have a hard time doing that with all the other ideas rattling around in my head. And so I'm just going to tell you how I see the world and whatever, and I'm going to start calling this attachment-based, maybe psychodynamic attachment-based, maybe that's a good term, psychodynamic attachment-based, because that probably is the best language for it. But um, so my take on interpersonal theory is that it's an integration of the following things, psychodynamic theory, object relations, relational psychoanalysis, and the idea, specifically the ideas of internalization, meaning that we will internalize relationships and we reenact those through what relational psychoanalysis would call enactments and what object relations people would call projective identification. Listen to all my episodes on, on projective identification for more info on that. Um, defenses, I, abs- abs- I absolutely find defensive, the, de- the language of defenses to be useful and that the therapeutic relationship is important. So those are all basically psychodynamic ideas. Uh, attachment theory, I incorporate that as well. Again, the idea that we have a biological need for physical and emotional proximity. This affects our personality, our working models of self and others, and that emotions are intermediary functions between noticing distance and motivating proximity. Uh, I've come to really see this very clearly recently. I don't know if this is exactly the way Bowlby would put it, but, and I've talked about this before, and I've talked about this in the attachment class that I talked about recently as well. But just in a nutshell, we evolved emotions for a variety of reasons. Emotions are there to motivate us. That when we feel physical pain, then that motivates us to pull away. When we feel emotional pain, that motivates us to pull away. When we feel scared about being eaten by a tiger, that motivates us to run away. When we're scared of someone um, and, we're, and we're compelled to run towards our caregivers, right? Run away from the tiger and towards our kin. Well, when we're afraid emotionally and from social situations, we want to run away from the threat socially and, and run towards security, Uh, That's what the fear, the social emotional fear will compel. And uh, so that's why we have those emotions, that the emotions are there for a reason. And we need to listen to those emotions. Those are emotions are telling us what we need. And the problem is in our society, we often get all busted up about what our emotions mean and, and whether or not they're okay to feel. And what are we supposed to do to solve those emotions? You know, again, going back to attribution theory is that someone's at home and they're depressed. Well, uh, in our common understanding, it's like, well, they need a pill or there's something, they're, they're lazy or uh, they're a loser or something. You know, there's certain points of view that we'll have in society and, and people will see it that way. Oh, you know, I'm... I can't get anything done at work, and I, I'm kind of an a-hole to my spouse. I seem really irritable. It's because I'm a bad person, or it's because I'm lazy, or it's because 
I don't know how to put, I don't know how to get enough willpower to overcome these things. Instead of reality, which is that in all likelihood, the person feels emotionally distant from everyone around them and maybe has always felt emotionally distant from everyone. And that's a very depressing feeling, meaning that you're uh, emotionally non-proximal and you feel that pain and that fear and that demoralization of being alone. In the same way that if you leave a two-year-old, the tribe 50,000 years ago is moving on to another pasture and they leave a, a two-year-old alone, that, that child is going to feel afraid, going to feel angry, going to feel sad, going to feel hurt, going to feel rejected, and also going to feel demoralized. And when we feel that way, then we look towards why. And if I say, well, I'm lazy, then we beat ourselves up even more. But if we see it for reality, we're like, oh, it's because I'm not getting any of my emotional proximity needs met. And uh, being able to see that clearly gives you the answer to the problem. Now, it's easier said than done to solve that problem, but at least you know what the problem is. Instead of saying it's me because I'm lazy, it's me because I lack willpower, it's me because I'm just generally an unlikable person, that kind of thing. Okay, so again, psychodynamic theory, attachment theory. Now, schema therapy, I incorporate this as well. I find this to be a very well-worded um, theory, and uh, but I essentially see it as an offshoot of psychodynamic theory. People often lump this in with cognitive therapy, but I find this to be, I mean, I, you can make an argument for that for sure, but I find this to be very much of a psychodynamic theory. Your, you know, schema therapy is basically the idea that when you're young, you, or you go through significant relationships, those relationships change the way you see the world and change your personality. Well, that's you know, it's a psychodynamic idea. That's a psychodynamic idea and an attachment theory idea. But anyway, also humanistic theory. But I emphasize the relational aspects of it in the same way that Harry Stack Sullivan wanted to look at Freudian theory through a relational lens. Lens. I want to look at humanistic theory through a relational lens in terms of what I was talking about earlier of just like. Yes, emotional expression is important, but we need to express emotions to others. And yes, em empathy is important, but it's the, the relational aspect of the empathy that really helps us. Authenticity is important and congruence is important, but it's being authentic and congruent with others. Being authentic and congruent by yourself can only go so far, but if other people are authentic with us and see our authenticity and value our authenticity, then that's really what helps us. Self-expression is important, but self-expression to others who receive us. When we express ourselves, that in and of itself to me is not enough. We need to express ourselves to someone else, and that other person has to receive us and, and reward us either by saying, great, I like it, or at the very least, just listening. And so all those in humanistic ideas that, that we know what we know how to get healthy if we're allowed to be ourselves, which is a relational self, not a self-actualizing self, but a maybe the way to see it is like we need to uh, realize our relationships. We need to relationship actualize, not self-actualize. We need to actualize our proximity to other people emotionally and and sometimes physically and also systemic theory the idea of circular causality and routines in systems meaning that um, 
when we have attachment needs and we are trying to seek them through other people, that other person also has attachment needs and also their own attachment reactivity. And so these two attachment needs and reactivity come together in a particular way. And over time, we build up routines on how to meet each other's needs. And sometimes those routines can be suboptimal. And if we change the routine, then we can change the the way in which people reward each other. You know, for example, you have two people who are, uh, they've been together for five years and they um, baseline are kind of distant, but they get some of their relational needs met. And so when we watch their behavior, they are, um, you know, they, they do things together, like they go on walks together, for example, and they talk, they chit chat. And this chit chat and the walks are them both, uh, and it's a routine that they do. And it's a, it's a way for both of them to get some of their needs met. And they're each rewarding the other person. So as one person chit chats, the other person reciprocates with chit chat and they kind of go back and forth. And this facilitates an attachment need to be close because you're, you're in sync with each other and, and you're in contact and there's acceptance there and there's a routine. But another part of the routine is that when something sensitive comes up, they avoid it because they've learned over time that when they go to sensitive areas, bad things happen between them. And so as one person becomes a little bit more vulnerable, the other person will have anxiety and then will distance or something and vice versa. And so these things cause each other, you know, it's like, well, I mean, I want to be vulnerable, but the other person doesn't like it when I'm vulnerable or when I'm vulnerable, the other person seems uncomfortable and I don't want to bother them with that. And the other, and the other person is thinking the same thing. And the circular causality part of this or the vicious cycle about this is that as you pull away in your effort to try to reduce conflict between the two of you, you're, you're actually sending this message of, I don't want to be vulnerable. I think it's a bad idea. And so from the other person's perspective, they don't see that for what it is. What they see is the other person is just generally uncomfortable with vulnerability. And so I don't want to bother them with that. So think you know, the, the, the two people are, are, are withdrawing and causing each other to withdraw more. And so when we look at this systemically, we see how these things are mutually causal in that the chit chat is mutually causal for a good uh, result, a good outcome. And the withdrawing is mutually causal in a bad outcome. And so when we can see that, then we can say, okay, we both have to change the routine such that the the new system operates differently to meet each other's needs differently. Anyway, and then the last thing, of course, is cultural context. You know, effect the culture affects the assumptions about the self, emotion, and relationships in very deep ways. You know, for example, it's weak for a man to depend on someone. This is an idea that is injected into us from culture and affects the way we think about ourselves. And there's a lot of men walking around. Well. Perhaps every man walking around is saying to themselves, it's weak to be dependent, but we as enlightened men have to overcome that in the same way that a black person might walk around saying that they're stupid and a criminal. They have to work hard to overcome that because they've been told that so many times or at least reacted to in that way so many times. And so we can get rid of it sometimes. Anyway, the point is, is that the way we see the world uh, and not just sort of obvious examples like that, but just the way we see the self. Who am I? What am I? What's the meaning of life? 
What are my relationships? Are my relationships good? What relationships do I need? For example, we live in a culture in mainstream American society today that says friendships aren't that important past a certain age. Friendships are very important when you're in high school, for example. But, you know, when you're 30 years old, 40, 50 years old, you don't really need friends. You know, you have your spouse and your family and your work, and that that's good enough. And so you have a bunch of older people, middle-aged people, who don't have any friends. And because culture told them that that was extraneous and that wasn't important and that to have friends is to kind of be frivolous in some ways and to be irresponsible. You know, to hang out with your friends uh, instead of getting your chores done is to be an irresponsible middle-aged person. And so that's a cultural notion that affects the way we see the world, affects how we feel about things and affects the way we feel about our own needs, affects the way we feel about our own emotions. The, the emotion of loneliness can, it's like, well, it, uh, it, the answer doesn't pop into one's head. It's like, well, maybe I don't have enough friends. The, the emotion pop, pops in their head. It's like your, your spouse isn't good enough for you. There's a lot of situations like this, actually, where um, you know, spousal relationships, partnerships will dissolve under the pressure of trying to get all your needs met through each other. A lot of couples will benefit by having close relationships outside of the marriage, outside of the romantic relationship. Because if all of your needs are being met through one person, that's a lot of pressure to put on one relationship. And relationships are inherently routinized, meaning that they become kind of the same over time. And if you, so they're good at some things and they're not good at other things. And if you're trying to make one relationship good at all things, then you can be very frustrated and very hurt and you're not getting your needs met ultimately. And that builds into contempt and anger at the person and then you break up and you wonder why my relationships never work out. Well, it's possible that you're trying to put all your eggs in one over, you know, overflowing basket. <laughs> but anyway, so our cultural context and our societal context affects also, of course, power and privilege when you have power and there's this assumption, you know, in a heterosexual relationship, the man is supposed to be in power. And if he has needs, then they might override the woman's needs. And this is actually proven in a lot of empirical science. It actually is one of the reasons why women are more likely to divorce in middle age is because they have endured more and, and given more than the man has on average, not always, of course. But uh, so we need to look at that. If, if we're going to understand attachment, if we're going to understand our relationships, if we're going to understand our emotions, we have to understand the society we live in because it, it taints everything and, and informs everything. All right, so let's go into some of the main assumptions here. And some of this will kind of be repeating, but just to be clear about this is that uh, according to me and according to what I would call interpersonal attachment theory is that people are relational creatures and that lack of connection results in many of the symptoms we see in the DSM. And psychological problems are caused by, occur within, and are cured by relationships. So let me kind of assess this out. So psychological problems are caused by relationships. So all the personality disorders, borderline narcissism, histrionic, uh, avoidant personality disorder, 
are all caused by relationships early in life, the same as depression and anxiety. Not all the time, but some of the time. Uh, depression can be quote-unquote biological, but meaning that you're you're kind of doomed with it in terms of your genetics. But often depression is at least in part or not wholly caused, in my view, conceptualization. We can never know because there's no way of knowing for sure. But in my in this model, in this theory, the idea goes is that a lot of depression is caused by lack of connection in a variety of different ways. And when I say lack of connection, I'm not talking about just like having friends or or feeling necessarily connected. It's about it's about really getting attunement, right? Having someone see you and know you and care about you. We have a human need for that. And if you've chronically been denied that, then you just give up and you become depressed. Anxiety as well, that when we're young, we need to be attuned to people to notice us and respond to us well. And when we don't get that, then the fear of childhood will persist into adulthood. And that's kind of the way I see general anxiety and phobias and, you know, people that just walk around just generally anxious are probably, at least in part, if not wholly, uh, still in the state of that of a 18-month-old child. An 18-month-old child is very scared. If you've ever taken care of or had your own children, you see that they're scared often. There are things that, that will fear, that will really make them afraid particularly when they're in public and there's other people around. You know, they, they see a big dog and they get afraid. They might cry. And this is just normal life, right? Because the child doesn't have the ability to protect themselves and they don't have the ability to really even know what's happening. Everything's just overwhelming, right? Well, if you're not attuned to enough at, at that young age, you don't neurologically change such that you're calm. And so you retain this just general fear of life. And then our brains will try to attribute the a cause for the anxiety. Why am I so afraid all the time? Oh, it must be because of the politics or it must be because of the fact that um, I'm going to die or my heart is is racing and, you know, I have a heart attack. That I'm, That's why I'm so afraid right now. It's because um, I had that, that little itch that was going on. Is that skin cancer. So that's our... Uh, mind trying to attribute something to the anxiety. But for a lot of people that suffer from ongoing anxiety, it it doesn't matter what the anxiety target is. They're just always anxious about something. And, and the brain just looks for a reason to explain it. So these are, these are conditions that are caused by a lack of attunement or relation or quality relationships when people are younger. Psychological problems are also, they also occur within relationships, meaning that, for example, let's take borderline. Borderline symptoms are triggered within rejecting relationships or within what is perceived to be a rejecting relationship. So you can't really understand borderline without understanding relationships. Uh, Borderline individuals don't just sit there and are borderline. They're borderline in relation to other people. Same with narcissistic personality disorders, same with avoidant personality disorders, same with paranoid. Um, you could say depression occurs within relationships and that your depression might kind of ebb and flow given what's happening in the here and now with a relationship anyway. And psychological problems are cured by relationships. Um, in other words, corrective experiences and secure attachment. I'll get into more of that later. 
And by psychological problems, I mean anything that causes distress, including loneliness, you know, which isn't a psychiatric disorder. There are a lot of things that aren't in the diagnostic and statistical manual that I think we can all agree are problems. You know, suffering from ongoing grief. Uh, there are a lot of people who will lose their parents in a car accident or their spouse will die or their child will die or they'll have a miscarriage or or their animal will die and they'll have psychiatric symptoms as a result of that. And that's not in the DSM. So just because something isn't in the DSM doesn't mean it's not real. <laughs> okay. So uh, by psychological problem, I mean just anything that causes psychological distress. Okay. So again, we're relational creatures and psychological problems are caused by, occur within, and are cured by relationships. And that uh, our personality is based on early experiences. We develop a style for managing proximity, i.e. attachment style or your personality, in the same way that Harry Stack Sullivan kind of saw it this way, that our personality is based on what we learn in our family and what we learn in society when we're young in life in terms of how do we manage distance from other people. Do I withdraw? Do I lean in? Do I alert people? Do I scream? Do I create art? Do I... Uh, stack a bunch of blocks to distract myself, as I was saying earlier. Um, the other thing is, is that it develops, and, and through this process of of learning how the world works, we develop working models. Um, as an example, uh, that's different but similar is that uh, we all have working models of dogs, depending on the society you grew up in. I grew up with dogs being off leash and everywhere in my neighborhood, and I love dogs. And yeah, some dogs can get nasty and they can they can bite you. In fact, when I was real young, uh, maybe five years old, I got uh, the neighbor's uh, Doberman pincer, uh, pincer, pincher, uh, bit me on the hand. It didn't break. Maybe it broke the skin a little bit, but it was um, real scary. And I, uh, but it was an anomaly, you know, because all the other dogs never hurt me at all. And so I grew up. Very, very familiar with dogs. And even when I see a dog that is real, real nasty and real, real snarly, I'm not afraid of the dog at all. Uh, I'm just not afraid. I've met other people who grew up in the United States who are terrified of dogs. And why is that? Well, probably because when they were young, growing up, they didn't have dogs in the house or they had bad experiences with dogs or they were told that dogs were scary or, you know, just a different experience. Okay, so this is a different working model of what a dog is. For me, a dog is a cute, trustable thing. To other people, dogs are fierce. Or take it a step further, in other countries, there are dogs that are feral, just wild dogs. Like They're like rats, and they live off garbage, and they they don't really want to cuddle up with you. I remember... In Mexico, there's dogs like that. I think I might have seen some dogs like that in Greece. And in this, in these countries, you might see dogs even differently, where dogs are like just big rats, and they're they don't deserve any kind of empathy at all because they're always trying to steal your food. And this, okay. So depending on your experience, you'll have a different working model of what a dog is. Um, and for and your emotions and your thoughts when you see a dog will be affected by that working model. Okay, I think we can all understand that. Well, the same is true when it comes to just 
thinking about other people and ourselves. When we're treated well, and when other people are trustworthy when we're young, we develop a working model that other people are trustworthy. You know, sometimes the Doberman pincher bites us. Sometimes other people don't care, but most of the time they do. Most of the time they're safe. Most of the time they hear me. And the working model of self is that I'm lovable and I'm likable. I have my flaws, but, you know, I'm, I'm a generally a good person because I'm treated like I'm a good person. Okay. If you're not treated well, say you're abused, then you have a working model of other people that they're dangerous and that they can't be trusted and that they're selfish and that they're angry and that they're chaotic and unpredictable. And the working model of self is that I deserve to be punished and I don't deserve love and I'm a bad person, I'm not good enough. And so we develop these working models and these working models will affect the way we see the world. And so when you are interacting with someone Let's say you grew up with the abuse and you have a working model of other people that they're dangerous and you go to therapy with me and you sit down and you will see me as scary. You will see me as threatening and untrustworthy and a person that has all these thoughts in their mind that are against you. You'll have these paranoid ideas that I'm secretly trying to get rid of you or something. Well, why is that? Well, it's because the working model held true when you were young. We develop working models as a way of predicting the world. We're always trying to figure out how the world works so we can predict it. And why do we want to predict the world? Well, it's because we want to, we want to shape the world to meet our needs. If we, you know, in a healthy circumstance, we learn, okay, my parents are always there for me if I need them. My siblings are sometimes there for me when I need them. Random people off the street are, they're not there for me when I need them. So when I need someone, I go to my parents. Why? Because I can predict that they're going to be there for me. Why do I, how can I predict that? Well, because of my working model that's been developed by experience. We're always trying, or, and this can get real micro in terms of like the, the way I approach them, I can predict if I approach them this way, then things will go my way. And if I approach them in this other way, you know, it'll go a different way. And so the, we're always trying to figure that out. We're always trying to predict like, how does the world work? And when I put this input into the world, what do I get back? Because we're trying to meet our needs. And uh, so when we have you know, problematic working models based on bad experiences growing up, then it'll interfere with our relationships in the present because we see everyone as threatening, even though they're not necessarily threatening. And we'll see ourselves as unlovable, even though we're not unlovable. Other words for this in the psychodynamic language is internalized representations uh, you know, of object relations, mental representations of self and other, relational schemas, relational templates, templates, roadmaps for future relationships, this kind of thing. Anyway. And there are a lot of other assumptions I could get into, but to mention one major one is that the therapeutic relationship is a place to heal and practice for other relationships. So the therapeutic relationship is a way of practicing for other relationships to get our attachment needs met, but also a place to heal, that you can heal from past relational traumas and uh, pain through a corrective experience in the relationship, which I'll get into in a second here. Okay, so let's end with how I see what you're supposed to do as a therapist. And I think it's pretty clear from everything I've said thus far as to what we're supposed to do as therapists. But uh, to just put a fine point on some of the things is as a therapist, 
I use the interaction and therapy to help clients change. And to be more specific, um, I use the therapeutic relationship to discover the barriers to closeness and attachment security that the client might have, to practice relating openly and functionally and in a way that helps them meet their needs, to practice with me, to have them express feelings, whatever they might be, not only to express themselves, but also to get your emotional attachment needs met, your expressing emotion and being attuned to. I will attune to that. You are uh, using the therapeutic relationship to provide support for relational risk-taking. So you talk, you know, I talk with my clients about what kind of risks they can take in their relationship such that they can get their needs met, but they can also meet their spouse's need, needs. They can meet their spouse's needs, and they can also change the way the system operates in terms of its routine. That I'm doing a lot of that. I'm doing a lot of with my clients talking about how there's a different way to work these things out. And often I'll just role play it. Often I'll just say, okay, well, I I hear that you said this, and that's great, but what if you said something like this? And then I just launch into it. And they'll be like, huh, that sounds... Because I find that I could slowly Socratically lead people to saying that, and it literally might take years for them to get there. Or I can just propose an idea of like what uh, honest and open and trusting and assertive communication actually looks like. You know, like an example is a client's telling me like, yeah, I got in a, I got in a fight with my husband and things went this way, things went that way. And and so, you know, I'll get all the specifics and we'll break it down. I was like, well, well, what would you say to your husband? And it's like, well, I was pretty irritable for a while and I was giving them a silent treatment. But then finally I went to him and I, and I said, um, I said something like, uh, we need to talk about what happened um, yesterday. And the husband said, well, what do you want to talk about? And then I said, well, um, I was just trying to tell you how I feel yesterday. I feel like you shut me down. And then a fight happens. Okay. So then I am telling the client, I'm like, okay, I'm glad that you brought it up. You're asserting yourself. You're valuing, you're valuing your needs. This is great. But let's, let, let me, and you know, I'll go back and forth with them for a while. But then I say, let me, let me propose a different way that you could have opened up that conversation. Uh, I'm not saying this is what you're supposed to say, but I'm just going to, let's just try this on for size and you tell me how it, how it feels. Um, so husband of mine, yesterday we got in a little bit of a, of, of some tension. I don't know what happened. It could be my fault. Maybe it's your fault. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm sensitive. I don't know what's going on. Um, in the moment, I feel like it's all your fault, by the way, but I'm pretty sure that's not true <laughs> because things can't always be your fault, but, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm to blame, but I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out what that is. But, uh, and, and I'm curious as to what, what you have to say. Um, but I don't like feeling distant from you and I don't like getting in fights with you and I, I want to resolve it somehow. I don't know if we can, but I, I sure would like to try. And I guess what I'm, what I'm wanting to talk about right now is I just kind of want to know what's going on in your mind. Um, did I hurt your feelings? Did I, did I scare you somehow? Um, because I'm having a hard time understanding why you did what you did. 
Um, and maybe if I understood where you're coming from, it would make me feel better. And I'll tell you, from my side, when you said this and that, it hurt my feelings. And then that's why I've been silent to you for the past 24 hours. And and I don't I don't like being that way with you. I love you, and I want to be close to you. Okay. So that's a different way of opening up the conversation. You know, I throw it out to the client. The client's like, huh. You know, because a lot of people are like, wait, so you can say all those things? You know, that sounds kind of nice. I've had many clients say, can you just come home with me and say that to my husband for me? Because I'm not going to remember how to say that. And in the moment, I'm going to get clouded. I'm going to get flooded. Can you just come home and say that to my husband? You know, they're saying it jokingly. And what I'm trying to do is I'm, and that's just one of the many things that I do, but, you know, through this kind of role play, and, so, and I'll do it in couples therapy too. I was like, well, what if she said this to you? And then the person will say, oh, actually, actually, that would have that would have gone over better with me, I think. And what I'm doing is, I'm doing a number of things. One is I'm communicating to the individual. So in that role play I was doing for the wife, I'm communicating to her that her feelings are okay. That when she was hurt, it's Okay. And for me to say out loud in her, from her being in her shoes, for me to be in her shoes and say, you know, to my, uh, to my husband, I, I feel really hurt and I want to be close to you. To hear my client hear me say that while I'm in their shoes, it validates their feelings. I hope that makes sense. The other thing, obviously, is it models what you can say. And as I'm, as I'm always saying... There's a lot of people, in fact, I would say majority, if not everyone, has literally never been modeled healthy communication. We're always saying, oh, you got to communicate, you got to improve communication. Who's, who's showing people how to communicate? <laughs> and the way you show is to do it. You can't say, well, you need to use I statements, you know, it's kind of BS. It's like, be in the reality of the world and actually try to communicate everything that you're supposed to communicate. And knowing how to communicate in a way that will result in good good reactions from other people. This is another part of communication that a lot of people just don't know what to do is they they are really focused on what they're trying to say instead of how other people are going to react to it. Uh, this is actually a problem with a lot of content providers, <laughs> I find, podcasters, YouTubers, of... of you have to be able to predict what, you know, when you do something in content provision, you have to be able to predict how other people are going to receive it. You can't just present the, and I learned this as a professor, and I guess I learned this as a, as a therapist too, you know, and I've never made this connection, but I, I suppose my ability, uh, skill that I've developed over 13 years to be a podcaster uh, began as a, as a professor and also as a, as a therapist, because there's a lot of things as a professor, particularly, but also as a therapist, where you're trying to sit, you're saying you, you're trying to get something across to someone that's very critical and very nuanced, and there's a lot of landmines if you if you word it wrongly, and so you're you're in a constant state of like I need to say something and I need it to be received the way I want it to be received, and also what do I want to be received? You know all these questions that are rolling through my mind all the time, 
you know, as a professor, I'd sit in some classes and I'd be bored to tears. In another class, I'd be riveted. And why is that? Well, both professors are smart, but one professor knows how to download stuff into my brain, knows how to lay it out in a way and, and walk me through it such that I'm interested. And the, the other professor is just saying things and just, you know, they're being accurate. The other professor, the boring professor is being accurate and saying the right things, but they're not doing it in a way that uh, compels me or that gets me to realize anything, you know? Anyway, so that's a big part of, of the relationship is, is that. So uh, getting back to my main tenets of the practices, again, supporting clients on taking risks in relationships. And one of the risks that I often will be talking about is by extending yourself at the be- at beginning and at, at the beginning stages of a conflict, essentially. How do you enter into a, a vulnerable, difficult conversation with someone and start it off right? Uh, and, and so supporting clients as they do that. Also, uh, the therapeutic relationship is for learning about attachment and barriers and emotional health. Um, every client I work with, I will talk explicitly about their attachment needs. You know, I'll say something like, well, it sounds to me like you've been alone. You know, who takes care of you? This kind of thing. And so it's uh, a place for me to teach them about, you know, our needs in that way. Um, also, th- corrective experiences, which I'll, I've been promising to get into, which I'll get into in a second. Also, uh, the therapist self is involved, meaning that when I'm a therapist, I realize that I'm not objective and I'm not a blank slate. I'm not trying to be uh, my own experience, my own counter-transference, my own transference is all involved as, as a therapist. I'm also collaborative and interpersonal therapies are generally pretty collaborative, meaning that they're not top-down and realizing that the therapist has their own biases. Also, wanting to establish a very strong bond, interpersonal, long-term interpersonal therapies, psychodynamic therapies will try to establish a very strong bond. In order for a corrective experience to happen and in order for good outcomes to happen, you have to have a strong relationship, meaning that the client knows that you care and feels good about talking with you. Also, encouraging expression of emotion for, um, which I already mentioned. Also... Analyzing how the client communicates with others, which I've talked about. All right, so let's end the whole thing by talking about corrective emotional experiences. Corrective emotional experiences were developed in 1946, which is pretty crazy to think about. I was talking about how in the history of interpersonal therapies going back to the 40s, like things are pretty much stuck in Freudian ideas. And it's interesting that Franz Alexander and Thomas French published this book in 1946 or this paper. I think it might have been a book. I think I might even have it on my shelf. Um, of this notion of corrective emotional experiences. The the way they uh, conceptualized it at the time was a very simplistic uh, version of it that we have today. But it, but it was definitely the beginnings of a very brilliant idea. So these psychoanalysts found that the client was often trying to pull them in to do a particular kind of routine and relationship. So you, you would have a, a client who would come in and provoke the, cl- provoke the therapist to attack the client. So the client might say things like, 
you know, you don't really know what you're talking about, do you? And you're a terrible therapist. And so what the therapist would be provoked to do is to defend themselves or to fire the, fire the client. And what Franz Alexander and Thomas French in 1946 or prior to that discovered was what will help in a situation like that is to act the opposite. So they just, they just found whatever the client is trying to provoke in you, in a dysfunctional way, you just do what it, you just do the complete opposite of that. Now that's too simplistic, which I'll get into in a second. But it's a ge- it's a good general rule to follow if you're new to the concept of like, okay, a client's trying to get me to fire them. So what's the opposite of that? Well, extreme acceptance of them. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna really pour on the acceptance because that will correct the that'll be a corrective experience and will change their personality such that they won't do that to people anymore, including me, because I will correct for it by giving them what they need. They're provoking something in me to reject them, but that's just going to reinforce their idea that other people are rejecting. And so I'm going to be very accepting. Now it works in that instance, but that simplistic view of just doing whatever it is opposite, you know, it's sort of like the Costanza approach to, to, to life. Uh, it doesn't always work. Um, but let me get into more specific. So anyway, corrective emotion experience became the cornerstone of, of psychodynamic therapy and interpersonal therapy um, specifically. And it was hated by psychoanalysts at the time. I mean, they really thought it was stupid. It's like, well, w- what is a corrective experience? I mean, that that doesn't have anything to do with actually analyzing their unconscious. You're, you're, just, you're just doing the opposite. What does that do? It doesn't do anything. Um, because it, it didn't have an emphasis on insight. It had an emphasis on experience and the relationship, which, again, wasn't um, held up by psychoanalysts at the time. All right, so this idea of corrective emotional experiences were expanded upon and investigated over decades. And so I'm going to present to you the contemporary conceptualization, which is the primary thing that I've been doing in therapy for a long time. And I thought of this as interpersonal therapy, but... Again, I probably should, could word it as psychodynamic attachment-based therapy, really, because it, it is a psychoanalytic, psychodynamic idea, and I use it within the attachment framework. Okay. So the contemporary conceptualization is that the therapist provides a new and more satisfying response to the client's old relationship patterns. So I, as a therapist, provide a new response and a more satisfying response to the client's old relationship patterns. And it often involves being nice, essentially. <laughs> being, you know, being accepting, being compassionate, being warm, being attentive, being safe, and being connected. But really it's, I mean, nice is a, is a good word for it, but it's also connection and empathy and intense. Intensely nice, intensely connected <laughs> in a nice way. Um. And the purpose of this is to disconfirm faulty expectations of others and self. So you're trying to change those working models. You're trying to change the schemas. You're trying to internalize a new relationship representation and learn how to respond in new ways and to disconfirm uh, working models and internalizations that they've internalized from bad experiences in the past. And this is from experience, you know, and, and what this is not insight-based. This is experience-based. Uh, 
we can I can talk with a client for years about how okay we know that the abuse you went through affect affected the way that you see the world and makes you distrustful of others and you need to try to trust other people but deep down it's really hard for them because it's just like but I don't trust them and I'm scared of other people and I have all these reactions that just happen automatically okay and insight can help you know power knowledge is power and sometimes insight can change but if we really want to change and this is always been my contention when I boil all therapies down to two different pillars it is one insight and two is is experiential change changing healing essentially is another word for it when we heal and we change our working models or change the working models into a more realistic um, reality then we're changing the fundamental blocks of our foundation so through you know when someone comes to me and say they just they sit down in my office and they just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and they keep me at at an emotional distance well in those instances i'm going to feel inadequate i'm going to feel discounted i'm going to feel ignored i'm going to feel like i don't matter because i'm and any therapist out there you know that that this is a, a frequent um, evocation that is being caused by the client's transference you know the the client as a young person was discounted and ignored and so they come into therapy with that internalization and they're recreating it and they're making you feel like the way they felt when they were young and they're also terrified of being discounted by you and so they're talking a lot to avoid the opportunity to be discounted by you so there's a lot of discounting neglect energy in the room and if you're not aware of it as a therapist if you're not trained to pay attention to this and it takes a lot of work to learn how to do this you'll just end up feeling like the client is worthless and you'll and you'll refer them because you're just like I don't think this client showed up for the right reasons but what's really happening is that the client is reenacting this old relationship and the corrective experience is begun when you understand that when you go okay what am i being pulled into right now one i feel discounted um then that can be hard for a therapist to admit to themselves that there's a lot of therapist language that therapists will say it's just like ah uh, yeah this client isn't ready for therapy or this client's real narcissistic i don't I, they won't let me in this kind of these kinds of judgments and and then the full stop on their analysis instead of going like okay what what traumas relational traumas are at play here and what projective identification is at play here? And so you analyze, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling, what am I feeling? Okay, I have these thoughts that I want to fire this client, but what's really going on? What, what am I feeling? I'm feeling like I'm pushed away. I feel like the client is, is, is discounting me, sort of pushing me out of the way and, and just wants to dominate with their own words. And they don't want me to come in. They, they're rejecting me. That's kind of how I feel. I feel rejected and discounted and sort of bulldozed. And in, I feel invisible, like I don't matter. Okay, maybe the client grew up with this chronic feeling for themselves and they're projecting that into me and they're, they're now behaving like their parents did, at least emotionally, with me. Okay, that must be the relational trauma what's the corrective experience well the corrective experience is to pay attention is to pay attention to them deep down they feel discounted and invisible and as they keep me at bay it perpetuates that 
you know, their effort, the defense for the narcissistic person is to yammer and yammer and make everything about them. But, uh, but they're trying to protect themselves from being discounted by you. But when you yammer and all the time and you keep someone at bay, the other people are going to discount you because you're not letting them in and they feel rejected and they're just going to withdraw from you. And so the narcissistic person is, is yammering and yammering and talking and talking, talking, and the client feels discounted. But if the client actually, and, so, and, and the client deep down is like, oh my God, I'm going to be discounted. But they're, they're causing the, dis, the discounting to happen to them. And, that, and the same with borderline, you know, borderline individuals are, because they're relationally traumatized, they're terrified of abandonment. And when they're so terrified of abandonment, they will actually make their therapist feel like they're being abandoned. They will make the therapist feel by putting them down or by, I don't know, getting really angry at the therapist, um, saying the therapist isn't warm enough or something, criticizing the therapist. The therapist ends up feeling like they're being abandoned. Now, they won't have that in their conscious mind. It'll just feel like this client hates me right now. Or I'm scared of this client is another thing. I, oh my God, I'm, I'm I'm intimidated. This this client is this client scares me. And the the client or the therapist essentially is feeling the feelings that the client went through when they're young. And what happens is if you're not aware of this whole process, the therapist will at the very least pull away emotionally and at worst just, you know, get rid of the of the client altogether, abandoning the client, right? So the corrective experience for the borderline individual is to withstand that uh, evocation, to, to, to withstand that provocation, to participate in that old relationship. And again, generally speaking, to accept the client, to be compassionate, to be warm, to be attentive, to be safe, and to be connected. And so to the borderline client, it's a matter of, of like... One of the very first borderline clients I ever worked with, I uh, didn't really understand borderline until I worked with her. And over time, I figured out, oh, I know what she needs. What she needs from me is maybe that's the entire session of me just convincing her that I'm not going to leave her. And so we would spend weeks of sessions where I basically just answer every single question and pass every single emotional test that she would put me through and not leave her. And and I would just keep saying, so I just want to remind you that I have zero motivation to leave you as, as a client of mine. And I will always be in practice, you know, for decades to come, and I will always have you as my client. As long as you want to come to me, I will accept you. I will never fire you. There's nothing you can do that will get me to abandon you. I will always be here for you. And I learned that, that that's what she needed. I, and I didn't even know about corrective experiences at the time. I just knew based on satire or object relations therapy or something. I don't know where I got it from, but I just, it's probably just clients just teaching me what, you know, their needs were. And I just knew, okay, I need to provide, that's the corrective. They're, they're trying to provoke me to, re, to abandon this client. She's trying to provoke me to abandon her. But I'm not going to. I know that that's what she needs. I'm, so I'm going to provide that. And by doing that, I change her working model from other people are going to abandon me and I am abandonable to 
Other people are not going to abandon me, and I am not abandonable. Other people can be trusted, and I am okay. I'm a good person because someone is actually paying enough attention to me and not leaving me and values me enough to go through all the emotional tests that I put him through. To the narcissistic person, you won't want, you'll feel compelled to pull away and go like, will you please shut up? That's what you'll be compelled to say because that's the way they were made to feel when they were growing up and they develop narcissism in response to being told to shut up. And the corrective experience is to pay attention to them and to just be really on board with everything that they're saying. Oh my God, tell me more. What's going on there? And maybe try to edge them towards more vulnerability so that they can even have a more intense experience of openness and expression to you and you can provide a corrective experience. But but in the beginning stages with a narcissistic person, you just you just really pay attention to them. You're just like, tell me more. What's going on? I'm here with you. And then they yammer for the entire session and you're with them the whole time. And you're just like, oh. And you're not trying to insert yourself because to insert yourself is to trigger their traumas in which other people were always inserting themselves into their lives without asking them and without making space for them. I mean, it's a simplistic way of looking at narcissism, but I hope you get my point. So that's the contemporary conceptualization of a corrective experience is understanding what kind of enactment is the client trying to pull me into and what's the corrective experience that will heal the relational trauma that the person went through. And I am as a therapist, the, the conveyor of that healing. This relationship is the venue for that healing and it can only be done through a relationship. Now, you can get corrective emotional experiences from non-therapeutic relationships. We do this all the time. When you're in a, re- a secure relationship, any secure relationship is a, is a corrective emotional experience because we all have relational traumas from our past. So if you're in a wonderful marriage, then that's going to correct for things. Through that experience will actually heal you from your past uh, relational issues and your psychiatric issues will go down too. Your anxiety will go down. Your addiction compulsion will go down. Your depression will go down. That's the whole idea. Not always, but usually. Because there are certainly other causes for anxiety and depression, but I think a lot of it has to do with what I'm talking about right now. And there are other words for this. You know, attachment-oriented therapists would call this a reparative relational experience. I suppose since I'm an attachment-oriented therapist, maybe I should call it reparative relational experience. Because it's not just a corrective emotional experience, right? It's, that's that's not a, a precise uh, wording of it. Really, it's a reparative relational. You know, we have to emphasize the relation part of it. It's not just an emotional experience. It's a relational experience, and it's a reparative relational experience. And behavioral therapists would call this exposure trials. So, when we hear, uh, and that's why I, when I can. boil all of the therapies, every single theory down to two pillars. One is insight and the other one is healing and corrective experiences is a big part of that. But in other theories, they'll call it a exposure trial or they'll call it a reparative relational experience or they'll call that, or they'll call this um, like systemic uh, morphogenesis. And the insight part of it is psychodynamic insight into relationship uh, attachment-oriented people would talk about your attachment needs. Cognitive therapists would talk about, let's talk about your automatic thoughts, REBT, ACT therapy, 
um, you know, there's existential therapy. You're talking about, you know, you're in charge of your life and what's the meaning of your life and let's figure that out. So there's a lot in the insight pillar and there's a lot in the healing pillar, if that makes any sense. Anyway. All right. Well, it's been quite a journey. Again, even just as I'm lecturing, uh, I'm refining <laughs> that way. So I, I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to type this in. I need to call myself a psychodynamic attachment-based therapist, not an interpersonal therapist. I don't think anyway. Um, now, I will say that I, I have colleagues who call them, you know, I actually had a, a, a supervisee for many years who called herself an interpersonal therapist. And, and we both, whenever we were talking about clients, we usually would eventually come around to, okay, what's the interpersonal solution to this, to this client? And what, it, when, what we meant by that, and maybe I'll continue to use it in this way, but I don't think it's reflected in the literature necessarily, is that when we were talking about interpersonal perspective or interpersonal manner of providing therapy is that you really focus on the relationship between the therapist and the client. And you're really like, tell me about, how you feel about me. Do you feel like I care about you? Are you worried that I secretly hate you? What hap- you know, how close do you feel to me? Do you want to be more vulnerable to me? You know, just being really intentional about, let's really focus on this relationship. Now, some people would say, well, that's just really psychodynamic because, uh, you know, within a certain school of psychodynamic theory, that's bread and butter. It's just really focusing on the relationship between client and therapist. But, and there's a lot of really rich stuff that can happen there. It can be real scary for everyone involved, for both therapist and client, for the therapist to be just really focused. Like, so what do you think? What do you think is going through my head? I mean, what do you What do you think I'm thinking? You know, um, do you care about what I think? Do you think that I'm wrong sometimes? You know, just really getting into it. Do you Do you feel that I care? Do you let in that I care about you? You know, just being really intense around that. And that's kind of a humanistic thing too, like a here and now thing. So I, I hope that at, through this talk, you can learn some things, but also learn that all the different theories overlap in some very significant ways such that they're all compatible in a certain way. It's just a matter of like how you word it, right? And that's how I see it anyway. I feel like all the theories are basically describing the same thing from a different angle and emphasizing different parts of it. And certainly some theories are definitely introducing new things, but when you shove it all together, it all it all makes sense to me. Anyway, so that is my meandering discussion of interpersonal therapy, and I hope it makes sense. And email me. Go to the contact page on our website and let me know what you think of this, particularly you clinicians out there. I'm wondering how this how you received this. Was this review? Did you learn anything? Did you learn anything about yourself as a therapist? Does it clarify anything? Do you call yourself an, an interpersonal therapist yourself? And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it and provide corrective experiences and allow corrective experiences to happen to you because you deserve it. You really, really do. Mm-hmm.